0: Here in Israel, we are now in a unique window of time that occurs between Yom HaShoah, Halakas Remembrance Day, and Yom HaZikaron, our Memorial Day for Fallen Soldiers. This is a space naturally inhabited by our What Matters Now guest this week, former Director General of the Justice Ministry, Emi Palmor. She's a specialist in international human rights and government policy. She's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. And when not lecturing at law schools and leadership programs throughout the country or concentrating on her part-time work on the Facebook oversight board, she is also the volunteer head of NATAL, an apolitical nonprofit organization that specializes in the field of war and terror-related trauma.
1: She says that for her, it all began at home. First of all, it's the legacy of being Jewish and and understanding our history and the way that we need to have a country. But the democratic part is the remembrance of what it means to be a minority and what it is to be persecuted on the basis of race. This week, headlines were
0: again made about the looming judicial overhaul legislation, this time a potential bill that would make ministry legal advisors a discretionary role. As she is a 24-year veteran of the justice ministry, six of which she spent as its director general under several ministers from different parties, I, Amanda Borchel-Dahn, ask Emmy Palmore, what matters now? Emmy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Such a pleasure to have you in our Jerusalem office. It's been a very full week. We've had Yom HaShoah, we've had many other things, but we began this week with talk about the legal counsel bill. And so we're going to drill down on this and many other aspects of your work and volunteer work. But I ask you this week, what matters now?
1: Actually, I think we cannot ignore the fact that we had uh, the Holocaust Remembrance Day this week and next week we have Independence Day and uh, the Memorial Day for soldiers and victims of terror because everything that we're dealing with is dealing with the basics of the existence of Israel as the Jewish and democratic state that it is and that it is supposed to continue to be. And I think that the big picture has a lot to do with Really, the the analysis of what a democracy means, I think that it's interesting that a nation is looking again, trying to ask the big questions again after 75 years of existence without a constitution. People in Israel like to say all the time, you know, we have an elephant in the room. Well, I'm not sure it's an elephant in the room. I think it's, you know, it's, (laughs) it's a big, big, big writing on all our walls. We have a very special political culture, definitely for the past five years or five elections. I don't remember anymore. Who, who remembers? Nobody remembers. It's almost anymore. the same thing, yeah, actually. <laughs> I, was, I was a civil servant. Uh, since 1997, I was a prosecutor uh, at the Supreme Court and in, in the criminal division. Uh, I was the director of the Department of Pardons. Since the year 2000, I worked for 14 years with every minister of justice. And then I became the director general of the Ministry of Justice in 2014, and I lasted for almost six years, which is something that you cannot even, you know, dream about Under nowadays. many
0: different political parties. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. You know, I'm like the civil servant who proved that it's possible to be a director general both with a, a minister like Tsipilivny, who came from one party, which was at the time center left wing. No, it was center. You know, nowadays, everything became left, everything that is not Likud of Netanyahu is left wing. Uh, and afterwards with Ayala Chaked, who was definitely right wing, she came from a party called at the time, uh, the Jewish home. And I I found a way of bringing myself as a professional and as a person who was raised in the Ministry of Justice, not only professional, but you know, with all the, you know, background of being part of this uh, system, and it worked really, really well. But we cannot remember that anymore, and we cannot remember anymore that professionalism in the government is the important thing because everything our politicians want is, you know, to advance programs, ideas agendas that are about you know the infrastructure of ruling and 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 having this country going forward
0: let's drill down a little bit into the buzz of the week which is of course the legal counsel bill yeah. now it seems to me uh, I'm not a lawyer or and I wasn't 24 years in the justice ministry like you but the legal counsel is a way of having checks and balances within each ministry and so the proposal is as i understand it that each minister will be able to hire in a discretionary kind of way his own legal counsel and it could be from somebody who is not from the public sector it can be a private uh, lawyer and fire this person at the same time so
1: tell me how it is now essentially there is a term in the Israeli government which is called positions of trust. These are few positions that the politician have the right to bring their own people because that's the logical thing to do. This is our system. We have a professional. We have to say that as opposed to the US for example, we have a professional civil service. People serve for 20, 30, 40 years, of course not in the same position but moving around, and there are few positions of trust which is positions that the minister is allowed to bring. First of all, the people in his own cabinet, and then the director general. This is why electing me at the time was very rare, because usually it's a political person who is the director general, and definitely, definitely the legal, the legal advisor is not supposed to be a position of trust. And this is part of the change that this bill wants to create. And I think that it's a it's it's a miserable bill, really. I, usually I don't speak in such a in such a way because. It really has to do with a number of legal advisors that I know personally, who are stuck in their positions for many, many years and are, you know, just like you have all kinds of people when you, when you employ a lot of people who are not the best, who are sometimes uh, very conservative. Uh, or people who are ineffective, you know, you ask them to do something and they never do it, or they're, you know, they have like a certain aggressiveness in their bureaucracy, you know. essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. And because of that, and because of the bad experience of a few politicians from the Likud, who was ruling, you know, Israel for the past, you know, 20 years back and forth, so they had a lot of experience with these people. You create a bill that is really going to ruin the concept of a legal advisor who is really supposed to bring the checks and balances, and the, most of the time, and many of them are like that, really find the best solutions to obey the both obey the law and promote the specific you know, programs, agendas, whatever bills that uh, the ministers want. I think that the irony is that two ministers who were deep, deep, deep uh, involved in, in advancing those ideas back in 2015, 16 and 17 were Ayela Shaker, the Minister of Justice, and Yariv Levin, who at the time was the Minister of Tourism, and they had a team together. Both of them, were practically in love with the legal advisors that they had in their own ministries but it's, you know they had this you know this agenda that legal advisors should be personal nominations and trust positions and you couldn't confuse them you know with reality and the reality is you have good people you have bad people learn how to deal learn how to manage but this is this goes back to what i said as our political culture when you have bad nominations for example for director generals and we saw that i, I really don't want to get too personal uh, but you see how the standards are lowering and lowering and lowering you have people who really don't know how to manage large staff and how to um, deal with complex situations that Everyone who has a company or has a ministry <laughs> knows how to deal with. And I remember myself as a director general because, you know, I, I was trained as a, as a director in the service. You know, over the years, I came with a lot of capabilities. And one of the ministers, I won't say which, from the Likud, told the Chuket, maybe you can lend me Emmy because I have this issue with my legal advisor of of my ministry and my director general doesn't know how to deal with it. So maybe she can talk to her and she can give her the feedback and maybe she can convince her that it's about time that she will retire. She's already 20 years in the same position. So when you know the truth from within, you know that it has nothing to do with but the principles of the rule of law. And uh, I don't know how you say it in English, the word Meshilut, governance, you know, this, you know, this buzzword governance, you know, you find out that, you know, the, the ministers and the politicians love to talk about this, but when you have to walk the talk, when you really have to do the work, when you really have to build all the teams that you need in order to work, in order to govern, they prefer to bring someone that they owe something or to or that he will be faithful. Okay, faithful is important, but what else? So this is part of the problem. Okay. So you obviously think that there
0: are problems in the current system. And I wonder if you have any ideas yes. how to solve these problems, because why should somebody be forced to work with somebody that they're not
1: that they don't have chemistry with or that they can't Our system is not a system of chemistry. It's a system, first of all. I mean, these are huge questions and I can talk about it, but it's really boring to people who don't understand how the civil service works. I think we have a very, very big problem of supervision, of training, of um, setting standards, of giving feedback, of really, I mean, I call that management. And management is much more than just, you know, hiring people, firing people, uh, you know, setting the programs for the ministry for the next five years and so forth. It's super important. But really, it has to do with the fact that, you know, when you don't do those things, uh, you have an inefficient system. And when I look, for example, at our uh, judicial system, when I look at the courts in Israel, I see tons of problems. None of them is being dealt with our Minister of Justice or our government right now. The system is inefficient. Nobody really supervises. Nobody really asks the basic question of how long does it take to, you know, have your case in the lower magistrate courts. And when it's, you know, the whole system is neglected because the entire time our politicians are busy with the Supreme Court uh, and dealing with the constitutional issues, some of the lack of trust towards this system has to do with really boring, you know, daily matters that you and I find when we have uh, a fine, uh, you know, traffic uh, Something and we want to go to the magistrate courts. You know, when you have a, you have a small business and you have a problem uh, with someone who didn't pay you. When you have a dispute, you know, a, a commercial dispute. Nobody cares about this. And then they tell us, no, the people doesn't trust the judicial system. The people have no idea what is really happening in the Supreme Court. I mean, sometimes, yes, and especially if you brainwash them on a daily basis and tell them how the Supreme Court justices are against them and so forth. Nobody comes and brainwashes you how the Supreme Court enabled women in Israel to do so many things that they couldn't do before, or how the Supreme Court kept religious Uh, rights of people across the country and across the religions who are living in this country or how the Supreme Court protected gay rights, you know, in Israel. So it's really a lot uh, uh, about the awareness of the public to those issues that gives, you know, the legitimacy to this overhaul. And it doesn't, you know, because when time came, and this is really unbelievable, that so many people were willing to protect the judicial uh, system in Israel. You know what? Sometimes I say to myself, I'm not sure that people understand so deeply what it means as they are capable of noticing that the political cu- culture is so crazy. I'm sorry. I, I, it really, it's turning so self-centered, with the political needs of our politicians, which are important, but they cannot be the only thing that the government deals with. I think this is basically, if you have to explain what happened here in the past few months, I think it's the notion that power can be unlimited, and it's just a matter, especially because we went through five uh, elections, it, it is a coincidence who becomes the one, you know, holding the wheel And, you know, you can have a party of six mandates like Bennett, like Naftali Bennett, and you become prime minister. It was just as absurd. You can be happy that it's a, you know, a government that is composed of right-wing and left-wing, and it has a certain type of, you know, hope that it gives. But you still see the absurd that a person who doesn't have a wide legitimacy can become prime minister. And this has to do with the fact that a basic law, the basic law of uh, the government, Chok Sodom was turned around a government before by Netanyahu and Gantz in order to enable a coalition where both of them are prime minister. One is, you know, the first one and the other one is waiting on the lines. And this absurd thing just passed like this. It's a basic law. When you have a constitution, you can't just pass those laws like this just because it's convenient at a certain moment. So I think that what is happening now maybe will give us a better next seventy-five years. Wow. Okay. Hopefully I'm I'm an optimist and I'm not optimistic those days. But you know, when it comes, you know, to really looking forward, I want to believe that we will end up stronger. As a nation, from this unbelievable crisis, and it is an unbelievable crisis. I mean, I I am truly. I mean, I've been sad in those past three months more than I can even uh, describe. You know, because I see what is happening, and I also see, you know, how it is really ruining, as it is right now. It is ruining the solidarity that we were so proud of. You know, for decades that what it means to be israeli it means that you live in a place where there is a special type of solidarity a special type of kol israel a special type of you know security that you will not be endangered ever by your people
2: you're listening to this podcast so i know you care about the war in israel right now And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out unpacking israeli history now in its sixth season they have episodes with topics ranging from what is hamas anyway to whether israel should ransom captured soldiers and the history of israel and its disengagement from gaza in 2005 unpacking israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand israel's present through understanding israel's history so educate yourself Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: So much to unpack here, definitely. Um, I would like to ask you many things about everything you said. But one point you made is that these basic laws are being made so quickly and so easily. Can they
1: not be unmade the same way? Yes, I think this is part of the problem. I mean, a basic law should be strengthened. This is one of the things also that we heard the news this morning and they were talking about one solution that will say that the Supreme Court will be unable to uh, deal with the basic laws, but to legislate a basic law is going to become much, much harder and will need a wider consensus. And I think that that could be a good balance between the two issues. By the way, it's not only the basic laws. Uh, I don't have the figures right now with me, but uh, the percentage of legislation in Israel is crazy compared to other places. I mean, every member of parliament thinks that what he has to do is to try to legislate and to put bills and so forth, and much less do what should be done by the parliament, which is to supervise the work of the parliament. This is also one of the issues of the separation of powers in Israel, which is not really separated, and the parliament doesn't really supervise the government as it should, and which is much needed. By the way, this is the type of supervision, for example, that the judicial system doesn't receive on the everyday basis. I mean, the, those basic questions about efficiency, about clarity, about all kinds of things, about transparency, by the way, issues that can bring us to talk about the Oversight Board, you know, because uh, you know, the the issues of do you trust the system nowadays has a lot to do with the transparency, has a lot to do, by the way, we didn't say a word about this, but I worked a lot uh, during my days as Director General on issues of diversity. And I truly believe that this issue, I think it's being politicized again. It's, it's being politicized, but diversity is important. Diversity in the judicial system is important. But, you know, we're living in the world of post-truth. Again, let's blame social media. So you can see serious people saying back and once and again that uh, it's unbelievable. There is not even one uh, judge in the Supreme Court which is of uh, Moroccan origin. Well, there is, but, you know, maybe it's not enough. But Let's not say that there isn't, but people don't know what the facts are. And the facts are really, you know, accessible. You can Google and see the names and and the backgrounds of our Supreme Court justices, but nobody does that. And it's enough that you're an influencer on social media. You can say whatever you want. Nobody really does the fact-checking. Except you. But before we turn (laughs) to that, I just want
0: to uh, make sure I I summarize very quickly some of the points that you raised. It sounds like you're saying that the system, the judicial system and and the justice ministry and all other bureaucracies in terms of their legal advisors, it is not a perfect system. It needs a lot of work in terms of training and oversight and and management, essentially. And the ministers uh, in general are tending to hope at least to surround themselves with yes men, which as politicians, they often do anyway, and that they too don't have the managerial skills to continue uh, with uh, putting forth a professional program in order to actually make our bureaucracy work. So that's that's one subject. Now let's turn to Facebook, or Meta, I
1: guess, yeah, as they're calling true. themselves now, the Facebook Oversight Board. You are one of... 22 now. We started 20, and uh, one of our co-chairs stepped down, and we just nominated three new members. Maybe we're 23 already. I'm, I'm not right. sure. And I
0: think the yeah. goal is 26, if I'm not mistaken. You know,
1: right. Yeah. And you just started a second
0: term on this right. uh, oversight board. First of all, how did you get involved in this? And I, you have no social media footprint yourself. Right. (laughs) As far
1: as I could see. I was approached. uh, I left the ministry in 2019, and in January 2020, I was approached uh, by people of Meta Israel and asked if I'm willing to consider this. I had no idea, and I I had no idea what the oversight board is supposed to be, or in spite of the fact that it was already, you know, talked about and and Meta did uh, Uh, a long way in trying to, you know, to do some kind of uh, consulting around the world about creating this board. So it was a complete surprise on one hand, Uh, but the more I learned about the board, the more I saw that, I, I know it sounds naive, but I saw it as a continuation of my work as a civil servant. I thought that after being a civil servant in Israel, I can become a civil servant. Of the globe, I think it's it sounds pretentious, but it's not from the pretentious side. It's because I really believe that uh, the vocation, yeah, what what I came to do on the board, at least in the way that I uh, perceived it, was to represent the voices that are not being heard. And I think that the whole concept of the board, which is really, I call it a regulatory startup, you know, it's it's really a very brave experiment and a very important concept of self-regulation that understands, first of all, that Meta at the Silicon Valley can be, you know, the most wonderful hub of the most gifted people, but it will never hear the voices of the entire globe. It will never be diverse enough And it needs to bring, first of all, diversity into its decision-making. It needs to bring more perspective into its decision-making. And the perspective, this is also a very interesting concept, are not just about being people from around the world, you know. Right, from, the
0: board, if you look at the people involved in it, it's uh, like a Benetton ad. It's from
1: every different country, every yes, color, but, every... but more important, in my opinion, than being from all those countries, which is definitely countries, cultures, languages, it's the professional diversity because it is called, you know, in some places as the Supreme Court of Meta, but it's not just about... Uh, People with legal background. You have people uh, like uh, Alan Rusbridger, who come from journalism, from being editors in chief of the most important, from the Guardian, the most important, uh, uh, you know, media uh, groups in the world. Uh, people who come from NGOs. People like Nigadad uh, from Pakistan and like Julia Wono. Uh, from Cameroon and France, they bring it, I, I remember myself at the beginning or or people who come, you know, from different systems. it's it's you know, people who come from a technological background, um different religions, different, different religions, gender, different different absolutely ages. But it's really, really, really interesting to see that when we discuss all types of issues, the way that a person who is an ac- activist talks about it, or a person who was a federal judge in the US, like one of our co-chairs, uh, talks about it. It's it's really, it's different. And you, you allow yourself to sure. say other things, to right. think differently. Right. And it really makes another way of decision-making. How do you discuss? Are you all on Zoom together? Yeah, or? we have a, It's a like very interesting system because uh, we started off uh, just when the COVID pandemic started. We were supposed to meet in New York, and it was canceled. And uh, we realized that we are going to be trained on Zoom. First of all, we went through a very thorough uh, uh, training, which took about six months. So we learned a lot on Zoom. First of all, we learned how to express ourselves through Zoom, and to learn to trust each other because it's really also a matter of, you know, understanding who you're working with and how they, how how you feel comfortable enough to express yourself, to disagree, and, and to bring- Chemistry. Yeah, chemistry, <laughs> right. Uh, and we ended up uh, working in panels of five. Uh, in those panels, you always have one of our co-chairs and you have someone who is a representative of the area where the case is coming from, but we are always uh, being supported, you know, by a lot of uh, professionals uh, who give us professionals and all kind of institutions who helps us with learning about, you know, when we're talking about where the case is coming from, about the politics of those area, the democracy. Uh, standards of that area, linguistic issues, historical issues—all kind of things—that helps us to try and, and understand the context uh, of the of of the materials that we are receiving.
0: So let's take a specific case. Um, I don't know if you worked on this one. The photos of trans and non-binary uh, individuals, nude photos or photos. Uh, that the nipples recovered, I believe, is is what happened. And initially, they were taken down because of, I think, uh, the idea that this 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 couple was crowdfunding. to have top surgery in which uh, trans people have in order to. Feel more comfortable in their skin. In any case, and so it was taken down because it was uh, under the category of, I believe, uh, sex work uh, initially. But this case came to the oversight board. Did you work on this case? We're never supposed to say if we uh, worked okay. On so this, so in this case, uh, who would have been brought in to give advice?
1: First of all, I think that one of the most important things we, we'd like the public to know, that there is a public comment process, first of all. When we choose a case, we publish the case on social media and also on our website, and we invite the public to give comments, to give perspectives, and it's very interesting. Sometimes it's you know private people, sometimes it's NGOs, it's all kind of people who do advocacy to those issues, and they bring a lot of knowledge. Another thing that we do, we have meetings with stakeholders around all kind of issues when we're trying to learn more. And the last thing is what I started with before, which is uh, receiving all kinds of materials that we are gathering from all types of institutions that we're working with in order to understand the background, the history, the terms, uh, so briefs issues. are prepared for you, essentially. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, But a lot of professional work is being given. I mean, the administration of the Oversight Board, sometimes people don't know how to conceive what is that board. It is a separate company that has a lot of staff that helps us with all kinds of issues. Uh, and
0: while well, it was found, founded and funded by Meta, of course, yes, it, it's a blind
1: trust, correct? Yeah, right. It's a trust. Uh, there was an initial trust that started the work was $130 million. Uh, the trust was renewed. I mean, there was another uh, um, amount, very um, large amount of money that was given to the board last summer. Uh, it is ruled by a group of trustees and we have a charter. It's it's very built in a way that... Transparent. It's transparent. And also we have our independence. It's important to say that... To the best of my knowledge, all of us are working in other... Wo- uh, it's it's a part-time uh, occupation. We don't depend on the board as uh, for our livelihoods. I mean, we get paid, but... Sure,
0: your time not, is important, yeah. and it's, it sounds yeah. like it's at least 15 hours a week. As, yes, as, yes, 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 it sure. is
1: supposed to be 15 hours a week. Sometimes we work on PAOs, and it's more complex, and we need to put more time. But uh, basically... Uh, It is a place that ensures our independence. And I must say about myself coming after 24 years working as a civil servant, I don't remember myself as free to criticize, to say what I think, uh, to be interviewed about my criticism in Israel, for example, uh, as I felt ever since I'm on the board. So we're both trying to be transparent. We're trying to um, express our independence in every possible way. And you can tell if you follow closely that many of our decisions and recommendations are not convenient to Meta. And they pose a lot of difficulties in terms of implementation, in terms of investment that they have to do in order to implement uh, what we're doing we also have the privilege of asking meta questions and receiving or not receiving answers and being transparent to the public whether meta answered our questions. It was very uh, important, for example, on the Trump decision, which yes. was one of the first decisions. Right, let's and talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we were very transparent about the questions we asked, the ones that were answered and the ones that were not. And if you do, you know, the follow-up on those issues, you understand how this is supposed to really change Meta. And I think that it does change it for the better.
0: So the Trump uh, case we're talking about is, of course, uh, from my understanding, after the January 6th riots, uh, Trump was barred from Facebook, also from Twitter. He, of course, uh, went back to Twitter earlier, but uh, he was barred from Facebook. And where does the board play a role here?
1: Look, this was a very interesting case. First of all, it happened really quickly. I mean, we just started working and it came up. I don't know if you remember the term that he was barred indefinitely, right? Which, when you translate it to Hebrew, you think that it's for good, right? Well, when, even in English, it can have and, that meaning. And also in English, you can think that it's it's for good, but it, it, what it meant was that it it was in a non defined way.
0: Until we figure things out. <laughs> yes,
1: and, and until we understand what happened here, because we didn't really have this type of tool when this happened. And first of all, what was very unusual about this case that it wasn't about a user that is appealing. Usually we receive cases only if a user is appealing. It was something that Facebook sent us and asked our Guidance, uh, you know. After they just, you know, did the initial thing. What we found out was that it was speaking of, you know, judicial overhaul and the issues of the rule of law. Uh, indefinitely it wasn't in the rule book of Meta. They used uh, a sanction that did not exist. They invented that section that that sanction for someone who was at the time one of the most influential users in, in the platform. So I think that even just revealing the fact that they were capable of doing something that was not allowed by their own rule book was super important. And also sending it back to them and telling them, we are not going to solve this problem for you. You have to look at your rules and find the adequate solution to this rewrite your constitution
0: essentially. Not
1: rewrite. First of all, look, look first of all, no no. First of all, you have to decide in this case according to your rules. If you want, you're welcome to, you know, rewrite your rules in order to be able in the future to put that kind of sanction on a user. That was only one thing. There were many others and I think that it's an important decision that is worth reading for everyone who is concerned with democracy and the rule of law and the rule of social media and the responsibilities. I think that this is one of the most important things to understand that the oversight board is one expression to the fact that although it's a technology company, it has responsibilities in terms of human rights And, uh, you know, the UN guiding principles for businesses are part of, you know, the concept that many users don't understand that nowadays a company like Meta is is, is an entity that has responsibilities that can be compared to the responsibilities of a state. And uh, I mean, is- they've staked their claim on the yes. territory, the metaverse, yes. of course, yes.
0: but yes. it it's uh, fascinating what you're saying just to uh, put it into my own words, essentially Facebook is beyond the regulations of a company because it is a global entity that that goes beyond borders. and there's such a thing as international human rights and your board, it sounds like is is trying to protect these and discuss yes. them at least.
1: Also, Meta is committed to protect human rights. And I think that the board is the one that is translating, you know these commitments into the everyday uh, monitoring of content uh, on 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 the platform. And it's very difficult. It's not a simple mission. And this is why I think that, We have this mixture of people who are, I said, we're not only people with legal background, but yes, we have some law professors, you know, from the most important uh, universities uh, that are capable of also giving, to give us, you know, those basic tools to analyze how the decisions and the community standards are being aligned with human rights standards and, and commitments really fascinating
0: do you appreciate times visual podcasts and our truly independent journalism that's committed to democratic principles has the times visual become an important source for your understanding of israel and the jewish world if so please join others like you who support our work by joining the times of israel community For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become our partners in ensuring media coverage of Israel that is professional, factual, and committed to democratic equality. For more information and to join, just go to timesofisrael.com slash community. Thanks. I'm keeping you for way too long, but before we end, I would like to touch on at least uh, Yom HaShoah, the yeah. Holocaust Remembrance Day, and upcoming Yom HaZikaron, our Memorial Day. Your name, in fact, is a testament to right. to your heritage. Can you tell yes. our listeners why? Yes,
1: I am, uh, I think, a typical second generation. Both my parents went through the Holocaust. My, fa- my mother was in a concentration camp in Ukraine called Transnistria, Uh, My father was in another part of Romania who was just, you know, he was just being persecuted and running away from one place to another, and he was not transported. And my name is actually, they are the initials of the names of my grandmother and great-grandmother, Esther, and Machle, which is Michal. So they took E from Esther and me from Michal and Emi, and I'm 56 years old, and I'm I think that ever since I'm three years old, I'm explaining to the world what this name means. It's not Amy, people You know, sometimes think that I'm American and it's Amy uh, or Emilia or something. It's Amy like the prize and, and it's also uh, after my uh, grandmothers. How has this heritage influenced your work? Everything in my work I think is influenced by that. Also my parents were persecuted after they came back They were persecuted by the communist uh, regime in Romania. And I think that my notion at home of what it is uh, to be in Israel means that, first of all, it's the legacy of being Jewish and, and understanding our history and the way that we need to have a country. But the democratic part is the remembrance of what it means to be a minority and what it is to be persecuted on the basis of race. And many of my work that had to do with the eradication of racism and the protection of rights of minorities and the advancement of minorities, for example, within the government, uh, has to do with me looking at my parents and knowing what it means. My father was thrown from university Uh, for being a Zionist, for being Jewish, and for being a Zionist, you know, in the 1950s in Romania. Um, And uh, they've experienced anti-Semitism in so many ways. And I can also tell my father was a diplomat, so I traveled with him around the world, and I had my own experiences of anti-Semitism as a child. I always called that positive anti-Semitism in terms that I was receiving many compliments that I don't look Jewish, I don't act Jewish, and so forth, you know, it takes you a while to understand as a child that this is not really a compliment. So, I have this awareness, uh, really, from from the very basic uh, uh, everyday life of my parents and my childhood and the way I was
0: raised. Before we turn to Yomazik Aron, just briefly tell us about the Palmore Report,
1: which ties Uh, in here. The Palmore Report is a report that was uh, given to the government after uh, the protests of the Ethiopian community in Israel that dealt with uh, policing, that dealt with all types of um, discrimination and with a demand to uh, try to find out whether there is institutional racism against Israelis of Ethiopian descent, it was an ultra sensitive issue. It was very difficult to decide to establish that uh, committee, and I'm very proud of that report. That, uh, by the way, there's now a case study in Harvard that was written by Professor Robert Livingston uh, in the Kennedy School. It gave 53 recommendations that all, almost all of them, were fully implemented by the government. And how, first of all, it acknowledged the fact that there is institutional racism in Israel against Israelis of Ethiopian descent. But it gave practical recommendations to the police, to the judicial system, to the educational system, uh, and others, Ministry of Health, for example, how to change that and how to create an infrastructure that will ensure that those things will not continue to happen. Of course, they do continue, but for example, in terms of policing, there is a huge progress within the Israeli police. I'm extremely proud that the three years after the report was uh, given to the government, there was already a decline of 50% in the arrests of minors of Ethiopian descent, a uh, decline of tens of percent to, uh, with the uh, incarceration of uh, minors of Ethiopian descent. And, and this is really huge. And this is really, I think it's my work that I'm most proud of and that is still living. I mean, the Supreme Court and other courts in Israel are quoting this report and uh, um, leaning on its data and on its conclusions in many of their decisions. So it's being taught in universities. It really has an impact on everyday life in Israel. So.
0: Quite the legacy for the public sector. Now let's talk about your volunteer work, yes. which ties into Yomazik Ronde the Memorial Day.
1: Right. Uh, I'm the very proud chair of an NGO called Natal. Natal is an NGO that was established 25 years ago by Yudi Reconati in order to address uh, PTSD of victims of war and terror. Uh, veterans, of course, and uh, citizens who are experiencing terror in Israel. It started with establishing very special helplines that are not just about, okay, you have someone that you can call, but also they know how to uh, create a a regular relationship between the volunteers in the helpline and the professionals at the helpline with people who need that type of help. It gives clinical help uh, for free to people who need it. And many, many years before the Ministry of Defense tried to improve its treatment of our veterans suffering of PTSD and not truly... Understanding that transparent, we call it the invisible wounds. You know, because when somebody you know lost his hand, you can tell that he lost his hand. But when somebody suffers from PTSD, most of the time, and for many many years, especially after the Yom Kippur War, people were ashamed to say that they're suffering. I mean, it was just against you know the the macho heritage of what it means to be a soldier uh, in Israel. So it's truly. Very important work. And I think that I had a very unusual experience when Natal uh, was uh, honored to be chosen by uh, Michal Herzog, our president's wife, and uh, Zelensky's wife, uh, to train uh, professionals from Ukraine who came here in July uh, in order to try and think how to support their people going through such a terrible war and give them the mental uh, healing that they need and the mental support that they need. Uh, It was funded, by the way, by very generous donations from North America uh, and and several foundations. I will not mention them now because if I will mention some and forget (laughs) others, I will be very embarrassed. Uh, But I think that our possibility of taking our own pain and the knowledge that we developed and how to treat, how to heal, how to prevent damages, and to give it to the world, even to the Ukrainian, where my own mother was in a concentration camp, is really an unbelievable Jewish story, an Israeli story that is worth telling. And uh, we're giving this help also to other communities in, the, in, in North America and around the world. We can't end the podcast episode just
0: before Independence Day, the 75th Independence Day like this, though everything has been very important. I would just like to hear from you a little bit more about your optimism that we are at a moment which will make a stronger, Israel.
1: Almost makes me want to cry. Yesterday, uh, I was standing in Natal's office uh, in Tel Aviv when the siren of uh, Holocaust Day was uh, going on. And I was just looking outside the windows. I mean, many members of my mother's and father's family, uh, you know, were murdered during the Holocaust. But I looked around and I said, wow, this country is so beautiful. And uh, it's unbelievable that I have the privilege of living here surrounded by my own people with, A lot of unbelievable achievements of the state of Israel and an unbelievable security to my children that cannot even imagine. I mean, you know, it's within our lifetime that they have known their their grandparents who were persecuted as children, who never had not the childhood, not the adolescence, and not even the years in the university that my children are experiencing. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And I'm very grateful to my parents that they made that choice and arrived here. I I would never choose any other place, you know, no matter what. And even in those days of this judicial overhaul, you know, I see the flags during the protests. And I love our flag. And it really brings me a lot of pride and a lot of hope.
0: Emmy, thank you so much. Israel is unique in that immediately following Memorial Day, we set aside our collective pain and celebrate the country's Independence Day. Off mic, I asked Emmy, as the volunteer head of Natal, how veterans deal with the fireworks that often mark the celebrations. She said that they can be very triggering and that steps can and should be made to accommodate these veterans. I ask you, our listeners, to keep that in mind as we celebrate Israel's 75th. This podcast was produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom.